Okay, so let me just pray for us again, and we'll get started. Lord, we ask that you would just come right now and just speak to our hearts. God, we are, Lord, I am weak, and I am very inadequate, so I need you to speak through your word. I pray that you would make it real and powerful and meaningful, and that you would accomplish what you would have to accomplish in each of our hearts tonight, and I pray this in your name. Amen. So many years ago, I was thinking, I think I was about 30, which is over 30 years ago, my husband and I um, went to Glorieta, New Mexico, a Baptist camp uh, up in the mountains of New Mexico for a week of Sunday school training. We were serving in our church. Um, our twins were not quite two. My mom kept them, and we spent a week there. It's kind of like church camp for adults. It was amazing. And just a beautiful, beautiful place. And we had this great idea. Um, of course, you're in a very high elevation that we were going to get up and there was a trail up this mountain, and we were going to hike up the top of this mountain before the sunrise came up and watch the sun come up. Obviously, I would never do that today, but so we got up early. It was still dark, and we started heading up this mountain because we wanted to see the beautiful view, and we had to really hurry to get there before the sunrise, which we did. And we got up to the summit, and it was beautiful, except this is what we were doing. <gasps> this is gorgeous. <laughs> I mean, sucking air like I have never sucked air in my entire life. Um, but it was beautiful. And so my hope for tonight is not that we're going to be sucking air, but that we are going to climb a summit through uh, our passage tonight and see something that's even more beautiful than that sunrise was in Glorieta, New Mexico. And so as we make our way through the book of Romans, um, chapter 4, we saw Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. And last week, we looked at justification by grace through faith based on what Christ did as our substitute. Abraham is the father of all those who by faith receive what God has promised. So our faith is the key. It is the channel. But what makes our faith an effective channel is the fact that it is placed in the one who is faithful. Our hope is not in ourselves, but in our great God, who even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's in 2 Timothy 2.13. Psalm 36.5 says, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Lamentations 3.23 says, Great is your faithfulness. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. So as we move to chapter 5, we're going to see the result of what our faithful God has done. Chapter 4 ended, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so we are going to climb tonight the ladder of assurance the benefits of what Christ has done because of our justification and the righteousness that he's given us. And uh, we can think of it as the rungs on a ladder, or you can think of it as the stops on a mountain trail, however you want to look at that. But we're going to see what the beautiful summit is when we get there. And so, uh, because we have been justified, we start in chapter 5, and chapter 5 begins, Therefore, because of what Christ has done, since we have been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to stop there before I keep going. So the first rung of this ladder of our assurance, the benefits of what Christ has done, our security in him, however you want to define it, is that we have been justified by faith. So as we begin this climb, that's where we start. We have been justified by faith. And then it says, because of what he has done, we have peace with God. So the second rung on this ladder is peace with God. So to have peace with God, we must have our condemnation and our guilt taken away because we've already seen that we are under wrath. We were under wrath. Apart from salvation, every human being is at enmity with God. We are spiritually at war with him. There's no neutral because we saw, even in Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. So our first truth tonight is being justified through faith gives us peace with God. Being justified through faith gives us peace with God. So we start with being justified, and then we get this peace with God. This peace has two parts. There's the objective peace of being reconciled. It's happened. We know our standing is at peace with God. But there's also a subjective and experiential piece to this. Uh, one writer named Hodge said, our experience when we have been reconciled or when we have been justified is a sweet quiet of the soul. And I loved that expression. That when we have been justified, our subjective peace is that we have a sweet quiet of the soul. This peace strengthens a believer's faith and confidence in his security in the Lord. And as a result, and we talked about this as a result of faith last week, it strengthens your service, how you serve God. It makes you bolder. It makes you more willing to take risks when you are at peace. When your soul is in turmoil, you don't have any margin to serve. You don't have any margin to take risks, to, to put all that on the Lord, because you're so busy dealing with your own turmoil, okay? Um, we see this in the armor of God in Ephesians 6.15. It talks about the armor of God, that his feet are shod with the gospel of peace, okay? This gives you a strong footing, a stability. And if you take my uh, illustration from last week, a deep root to make you steady, okay? So we started with being justified that we have peace with God. Let's finish verse 2. Uh, we have peace with God. Let, I'll finish actually verse 1 uh, and go into 2. With God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through what Christ has done. Through whom, speaking Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Okay? So, the next rung on this ladder, our stop on this uh, ascent, is access into grace. Okay? That word access into grace can also be called an introduction into grace. So that takes us to our next truth. Jesus is our access to grace. It said, through whom? Speaking of Jesus. Jesus 
is our access to grace or our introduction to grace. This word access or introduction is used three times and it always speaks of a believer's access to God through Christ. And so this was a really significant thing for the Jews because having direct access to God was unthinkable to them. Um, If you think about what we see in the Old Testament um, with the tabernacle or even the temple, you had the different places, and for the most part, especially with the tabernacle, it was only like the Levites or the priests that were even allowed to go into the tabernacle. Later on in the temple, you had like the, you know, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women before you got into the tabernacle or the temple proper. But there were all these layers and things that had to be done. And as far as the real presence of God where the Shekinah glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies, the high priest only got to go in there when? One time. He had to offer for himself, and it was risky. It was even risky for him to go in there because he could be struck dead by the holiness and presence of God if everything wasn't right and he didn't offer all the sacrifices for himself and so forth. And so having true access to God was unthinkable to them. And so this is a revolutionary idea. Christ ended that, though. Um, do you remember what happened on the, uh, the day that Christ was killed to the, to the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies? What happened? It was torn from where? Top to bottom, signifying that God did it and opened access. Okay? Hebrews 4.16 says, We could draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We have access into grace. It is a sphere of forgiveness that we can enter into. Alexander McLaren, who I absolutely love, um, a pastor during, he was from the time of Spurgeon, was as popular as Spurgeon. He's just not as well known today. He said this, and I love this. He says, you have access into this grace. See that you go there. I loved that. You have access into this grace. See that you go there. The Christian life may and should be enriched with continual gifts from God's fullness. That's part of what his grace is. It's a place of ample space, a storehouse of the treasure of the fullness of God. How shameful it is that having the possibility of so much, ladies, that in reality we experience so little. How shameful it is that having the possibility of so much, we experience and have so little. Because we choose not to go there. You have access to the fullness of God. Whose fault is it that you are empty? That's a powerful question. So, we have access into grace. And then the next rung on this ladder is in which we stand by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Stand carries the idea of permanence, standing firm, immovable, standing in grace. In Jude 24, it says, Him, Christ, is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. If you think about how the Jews saw the holiness of God and how fearful it was to even be in his presence, that we 
he can make us be able to stand in his presence, in his glory, presence of his glory, blameless because of what he had done and with great joy. That's an amazing contrast that we so take for granted. Believers may fall into sin, but their sin is not more powerful than God's grace. So not only do we have a standing, once again, each of these has an objective truth, who we are, and a subjective reality, what we can experience. And so Jesus Christ brings us to a stability that can control the ups and downs of our own heart. And I don't know about you ladies, but my heart can have a lot of ups and downs. But Christ himself can give us a standing where that doesn't rule us if we choose it. All right, so now we're going to move to the next rung. And these are all not only gifts and benefits, but they're all things that assure us and give us strength of who we are in Christ. When we have these things, when we know these things, when we walk in these things and experience them, they all lend themselves to our assurance of our salvation. So let's go in verse 2 and keep going into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, that word can also mean boast, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So rejoice has the idea of joy, of boasting, of exulting. So in the Bible, the word hope does not mean wishful thinking. In the Bible, when hope is used, it means certainty. So you need to get that in your mind. We use hope like, oh, I hope it's not going to rain. I don't know if it is or not, but I hope it's not. That's how we as humans use it. The hope that God talks of that we have in him is a certainty. It is a certainty. So make sure that you have that context. All of salvation is God's work, not ours. So our joy, our boasting is in him and his glory. So we have two truths from this. First truth, our hope is steadfast because it is in God and his character. Our hope, our certainty is what that hope is. Our certainty or our hope is steadfast because it's in God and his character. That's what makes our hope strong and steadfast. Our hope is steadfast because it is in God and his character. The wrong was that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are able to boast and find joy in the hope or the certainty of the glory of God. Not only his character, but as I'm going to tell you, the fact that we're going to partake of that glory. I'm going to get to that. So there's a twofold application of the glory of God. So the next rung, the next benefit and assurance is that we find joy, that we find hope and boasting in who God is and the glory that we're going to have with him. So the next piece is our hope is steadfast. It's in God and his character, his glory. And then joy immovable comes from that steadfast hope. That's the second piece. So we have this steadfast hope. And the next truth is joy immovable comes from steadfast hope. Joy immovable comes from steadfast hope. So in that phrase, we've got two parts. We've got the the hope of the glory of God, his character, and then the joy and the boasting and the rejoicing that comes from that. When our Christian life in the present is the richest, 
and abiding in him, our Christian hope of the future will be brighter. The more we abide and dwell in who he is now, the more our hope will be strong and bright for the future. We will have no fear of the future because our destination is ultimately to share in his glory. We will take part in the very thing upon which we take our stand and build our hope, God's glory, his character. So we stand on it, we hope in it, but we will take part in it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, it ends, and we're going to talk about this passage again later, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. We are gaining a glory, an eternal glory that's going to outweigh every difficulty that we have. We will partake in his glory. And our salvation has three parts, okay? The past, we've already seen Christ has made peace with God for us, okay? Talking about our hope and our security and being able to be steadfast. Christ has made peace with God for us. We have salvation in the present. He always lives to intercede for us, Hebrews 7.25. And then we have salvation in the future. We will be clothed with the glory of Christ, John 17.22. John 17.22. So our salvation has a past, a present, and a future aspect to it. This glory begins in this life as we behold the glory of the Lord and we're changed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me read that to you. And this is a, a really great passage that talks about how we are changed. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's 17. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect, that word can mean contemplate, the Lord's glory. As we contemplate the Lord's glory or as we reflect it, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we not only found ourselves on the glory of God and his character, but we are being transformed, and one day we'll be truly transformed into his image in fullness. So we rejoice in the glory of who God is, both in our standing and our experience of that as we contemplate him, as we behold him, as we meditate on him. All right, let me get back to Romans. And then we're going to um, see that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But also, starting in verse 3, I'm in Corinthians. Let me get to Romans. Verse 3, not only so... So not only are we rejoicing in the glory of God and that we're going to be transformed in his glory, but we also rejoice or boast or exult in our suffering. Now, boy, this takes a turn south. We all love the glory of God, but the next rung on this ladder that is a benefit and that is an assurance is that we are able to rejoice in our suffering our boast and our suffering. Now, in and of yourself as a fallen human being, does that normally happen? No. Even as a Christian, it's a little difficult unless 
we look at the reason why. And sometimes we forget the reason why because we dwell in what this feels like and it doesn't feel good. The very nature of suffering is that you're suffering, okay? <laughs> so it can't feel good. So we don't like it, obviously. But being able to rejoice in suffering is another level, ladies, and it's another level of assurance, okay? So let's talk about why. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. And I'm going to talk about why in a minute. But we need to see it from God's perspective. The effect of suffering for God's people is for their good, if you don't run from it, if you don't run from it and try to escape it, okay? What is the effect? You gain perseverance. That word means to be pressed to stay under, the ability to stay under, to endure. So that's one piece of your character that you're developing when you suffer. And then when it says... Um, Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character. That means proven character or a proof, like when you test metals. It's revealed. Now, God knows your character. God's not looking for, to figure out what your character is. Who needs to know what your character is? You do. And a lot of times, ladies, we're deceived about ourselves, and we think we're at a place until we walk through a difficulty, and we struggle through it, and then we realize that, as not that, not that you're this Miss Pie in the Sky and everything's fine and you're denying the fact that you're suffering, but that you're staying under, you're trusting the Lord, you're looking for him, you're enduring, and you're knowing from what his word says that he is producing good. There is a glory, just like we saw, that God is producing. Your suffering is never, as a believer, for nothing. God is always accomplishing something, refining you, testing you, strengthening you, getting out the impurities. Sometimes they come to the top, and you're like, ah, I didn't know that was there, you know, until there's, and it can be a minor suffering. I had to go apologize to someone for being rude to them last week because I was kind of in the flesh. I was stressed out, and things weren't going right. I wasn't sure, and I was rude to someone that had nothing to do, and I had to apologize and say, look, I was in the flesh. I'm really sorry I took it out on you. It had nothing to do with you. But nevertheless, there was a suffering, and guess who didn't prove their character very good? Me. So I'm like, okay, don't let me be deceived. Just come up here teaching the word of God that I got it all figured out. You know, the Lord is so good to keep us humble in that way. But nevertheless, hopefully the next time I'll be on guard when I'm starting to feel that rise up in me and keep my mouth shut. If I could only learn that, it would be amazing. Amazing. So... Character, proven character, testing. Um, James 1.12. Let me find that and read that to you. You know, you see, you see all these things not in one place in the Bible. You see them all over the place. Uh, that's a lot of times that's why I give you lots of other scriptures so that you can see that the Lord, you know, he knows that we got to hear things over and over in different ways. That's, that's how we are as people. That's how any learn, learning occurs. James 1.12 says, blessed is the man, okay? So you may not feel happy or blessed, but God's word says it's true. So it's true. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. 
because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And I don't know exactly what that crown of life is, but it's a reward. Sounds great. Okay? God says that this is a blessing. So here's your truth. God's plan for suffering is to strengthen the hope of a believer. God's plan for suffering is to strengthen the hope of a believer. Yes. God's plan for suffering is to strengthen the hope of a believer. So how does suffering do this? We see it in verse 5. And so we said, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So the love of God poured out within our hearts through the Spirit is how God produces hope through suffering. Not just the knowledge of this love. And by the way, that's our seventh rung on the ladder. The love of God poured out in our hearts through the Spirit. So we get the ability to rejoice in suffering. And then we move up to the next level. We have the love of God poured out within our hearts through the Spirit. That's what verse 5 says. Um, that's how, that, that is how God produces hope through suffering that he pours out his love within our hearts through the Spirit. And that love poured out within our hearts is the seventh rung on our ladder. Okay? Now, God's love poured out within our hearts. Not just knowledge of this love, because remember, all of these are, yes, it's given to you, but number two, you're going to experience it. There's an objective and a subjective application. We're going to feel this love. We're going to experience it, okay? And so the next truth is God pours out his love into our hearts through the Spirit, just exactly what the verse says. God pours out his love into our hearts through his Spirit. So if God's pouring it out, he wants us to experience it. Our job is to make sure there's no blockage, you think of water pouring out. You think of when something's in the way, it's going to stop the water from flowing. It's a dam or a hindrance to us soaking up his love. And I want to say this, that being still and meditating on the Lord allows us to experience this love rising in our hearts. The very thing that's so hard for us to do in our culture today, because we're all so busy and there's so much noise, and there's so much distraction, whether it's from electronic devices, our jobs, our people, or whatever it may be. But when, that's what, what does he say? Be still and know. Stillness precedes knowing. And that knowing is experiential. It's not just what you know in your head. God wants us to experience that, okay? Let me read... Um, an example of this, what Jesus said, okay? And we're talking about when you hear his love being poured out, you think of water, don't you, okay? So in John 7, and this is poured out through the Holy Spirit, this experience of love, 
This is what Jesus said in John 7, starting in verse 38. Well, I'll just start in 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So we see Jesus himself saying, if you're thirsty, come and drink. How do you do that? You go before him, you, you sit in stillness, you meditate on his word, you let him come. Our problem is we just want to say, okay, I got five minutes, Jesus, you need to come and, you know, drop, drop off a few drops for me and then I'm going to go on my way for the day. And, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like a relationship, whether it's with your child or with your husband or whatever, you know, we would like to say, oh, it's just going to be, you know, quality time. Okay, I've got 15 minutes where I'm going to sit down with you, and you're going to tell me everything that happened during the day. Did that ever happen with your kid? No. You know, usually it was late at night when something else was going on or just as you're going along the way that they would tell you those things because you have to make space for that. Same thing with your husband or a good friend. You can't just always legislate, okay, i got five minutes, tell me everything I need to know. You know, maybe guys are like that. I don't know, but we're not like that, you know. (laughs) I need more time than that. So what I'm saying is we have to make ourselves available to let that living water rise up and flow within us so that we will experience that love being poured out in our hearts, okay? Um, So how can we doubt this love, okay? He said, whoever believes in me, I want to read you what it is. Ephesians said, and I love this. I want to read Ephesians 3. We talk about this love and the importance of experiencing it, Ephesians 3, 14. I'm going to start in 14 through 19. This is a prayer, okay? This is a prayer that Paul prayed. For this, he prayed this to the Ephesians, who, remember, he spent two years there teaching all day, every day. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. So there's the objective may have the power, together with all the saints, to grasp, here's the subjective, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So the result of allowing this love experientially to move in your heart, to grasp it and to experience it is that you get the fullness of God, the fullness of God. So to know this love means to be filled with the measure of the fullness of God, okay? Now, let's talk about now Paul goes in and he's going to talk and give us information on the quality of this love that has been poured out in our hearts. How can we doubt this love? So let's talk about the quality of this love because he's just said God has poured out his love. Starting in verse 6, you see, at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does he describe us? This is really important. Powerless, ungodly sinners, and we've already seen that we're God's enemies. Now, that's not very flattering, ladies. But there's a reason that he says that. This is who we were when he died for us. John Stott says this, and I think it's very, when we're looking at the, the, the quality of this love, John Stott said this, The value of a love gift is assessed by both what it costs the giver and the degree to which the recipient may be held to deserve it. The value of a love gift is assessed by both what it costs the giver, costs God everything, and the degree to which the recipient may be held to deserve it. Powerless, ungodly, sinner, enemy. How much did we deserve it? Not at all. Those both are important to see the value of this love gift. God gave everything for those who deserve nothing from him. So here's your truth. The death of Christ for us, this is long, so let me just read it once and I'll break it down. The death of Christ for us while we were sinners is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. The death of Christ for us while we were sinners is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. The death of Christ for us while we were sinners is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. So let me ask you, does difficulty make you doubt the love of God? If so, will you remember the cross and the truths we've learned in Romans the next time you're tempted to doubt his amazing love? Now I want to read you. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 18, that summarizes what we just saw in rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and rejoicing in suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 8. It sort of summarizes what we've just seen. Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always be being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 
Therefore, therefore, because of this, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That is what he is calling us to do. Whether it's rejoicing in suffering, setting our gaze on hope, trusting in the glory that who God is and what he's doing for us, that's the beautiful picture of what he's just been talking about. Now we're on rung number eight, starting in verse nine. Certainty, this rung is the certainty to be delivered from future wrath or God's judgment. We have the certainty that we're going to be delivered from future wrath or God's judgment. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Here's the argument. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? All right. I love how much more. He's making the comparison. If God has the power and the will to redeem us as his enemies, how much more does he have the power and will to keep us from his wrath in the future? Okay. Um, let me read you from Ephesians again. Ephesians 1, uh, 2, starting in 1. I'm going to read 1 through 10. Let's see what it says here that lines up with this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is who we are. We just talked about that. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following our, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature, this is who we are by nature, objects of wrath, under God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages, this is why he did it, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. It's his glory. It's always for his glory. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, we are to boast, but not in ourselves. We are to boast in the glory of God. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance. We are God's poema, his masterpiece, his poem. So we see that he not only has delivered us from sin and judgment, he's delivered us from uncertainty and doubt about that. And we know that Christ is interceding for us right now. He's at God's right hand. I gave you two passages in Romans and Hebrews in your homework. So I want to ask you, have you been delivered from judgment by Jesus 
through faith in what he did as your substitute. If not, will you repent and surrender to him tonight? Ask him to be your substitute, to take the wrath of God for you that is due you for your sin. And do you doubt that Christ can keep you? Will you accept this word that he is powerful enough to do that? And then finally we get to the pinnacle. The pinnacle at the top of this in verse 11. Not only this so, not only is this so, but we also rejoice or boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. I heard a lot of y'all talking about that, and, and rightfully so. So our next truth is through Christ we are reconciled to God. Through Christ we are reconciled to God. This speaks of an intimate love relationship. In Romans, we've talked about justification, which is a legal standing. We've talked about a redemption, which speaks of the marketplace, of being a slave, being set free. We've talked about propitiation, which is a religious in the religious arena, turning away wrath. And now we see reconciliation, which is very personal. It's relationship. One evidence that we are reconciled to God is that we rejoice in him, that we boast in him. And so I want to ask you, do you rejoice in God? Do you boast in him? Not only singing praises, both in church, at home, at different times, but I want to ask you, do you talk about him? Not just with your Christian friends. Do you boast about what God's doing in your life? Do you speak of him? Many of us will boast in ourselves. Certainly we boast in our kids or rejoice in them. Totally in our grandkids. We, we, we rejoice and boast in lesser things. But what about God? Do you boast in God? All right? And so I want to end tonight um, by reading you Psalm 84. You know, we've, we've talked about this vista. And so we get to the top of this vista, and we get to the fact that we're in relationship with God. We, have, we started with we've been justified. We have access we're going to a place of grace. We have all of these benefits and blessings that we get to walk in and experience. And as we do, our, we have assurance that we're in relationship with God. We have a strong hope. But it's an amazing treasure that we take for granted. It's an amazing treasure that we take for granted. And um, we don't do like McLaren said. We don't go there. We don't go there. So I want us to look in the Old Testament. Because if the writer of Psalm 84 could say this, how much more should those of us that have had the Holy Spirit who's poured out God's love in our heart feel this way and make opportunity to experience this and have our hearts moved by this? And I want you to, as I read through Psalm 84, I want you to reflect on what we've seen about all these benefits and things. Um, because of Christ, we have access into grace that makes us stand. We can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Suffering has a good purpose. We are in an intimate relationship because his love has been poured out, and we can move into his presence, and we can abide in there. Okay, so let's read this, and I'm going to read from my NIV. 
How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. And remember, we're talking courts. They couldn't go in the Holy of Holies, ladies, but we can. So how much more should this be true of us? My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. There's that boasting, ladies. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, which is the valley of weeping, there's the trials and the suffering, they make it a place of springs because of who God is that can happen. The autumn rain also covers it with pools, and they go from strength to strength till each appears in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon your shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor, I mean grace, and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. What a great description of what our hearts should be yearning for, ladies, and how much more access do we have. The psalmist said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. Guys, we're in the very presence of God. In prayer, in seeking his face, and being still, we have access to the very presence of God. We are in reconciliation with him, a love relationship. So what are we doing about that? That would be the question. It's a beautiful ladder of assurance. I hope that you have seen the beautiful summit and that you will partake of that summit and that you will be blessed by this ladder and where it takes you with the Lord as you reflect on all that he's done and the benefits that come because of that. I pray that your roots have grown deeper and will continue to grow as we make our way through this amazing, amazing book. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that we have access into your presence. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us that we do not live our lives in such a way that we say better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. God, help us to see it, to want it, to experience it, to dwell in it, because you are the greatest treasure. And I pray this in your name. Amen.